Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Mr. Kevin Bubb. Kevin is the host of the Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast and the Real Estate Investing for Cashflow Podcast, both of which are, are top ranked on iTunes. Kevin is also the CEO of Sunrise Capital Investors, a fund manager that focuses on niche market segments that are currently out of favor, inefficient, and have less competition. Sunrise currently sees opportunities in mobile home parks and in parking assets. Kevin is an absolute wealth of information when it comes to real estate investing with over 20 years of experience and $100 million in real estate transactions under his belt. Kevin, thank you so much. Welcome to the show. Andrew, it's awesome to be here, buddy. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Can you start out by telling our listeners a little bit about your background and how you got into manufactured housing? Yeah, no, absolutely. We'll do. And again, thanks again for having me. And, um, you know, I've been a full-time investor for, for a little over 20 years now. So I'm 41 now. And uh, I got introduced to real estate when I was 19 and bought my first property, which was a single family residence, like a lot of folks do when they get started out when I was 20 years old. So um, I kind of followed that same model, buying residential properties for, for many, many years. Um, I was always into buying properties for cash flow. That was what my original mentor had, had taught me is to buy you know, buy it. Think of it as a, a sustainable income stream. Don't buy it to flip it unless you absolutely have to, because you're gonna have to start all over again after you get rid of that property. You have to go buy another one. Go buy another one. Right? You got to keep that 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 system going. Whereas if you buy them and they generate cash flow, number one, they'll pay down the debt, and at some point you own it free and clear. But also, if you decide one year you don't want to buy anymore. Uh, you'll still have an income stream coming in, right? It won't go away. And so I've always bought properties with the idea that they need to be self-sustainable, then they also need to generate additional cash flow that ultimately we can you know, put in our pockets. And so started with single family, built up quite a substantial portfolio in my, my early to, uh, to, to late 20s, um, and then moved on to apartment complexes, uh, bought a uh, about 500 units of uh, of smaller multi, smaller to medium sized multifamily, and then miscellaneous other commercial real estate types uh, throughout the years. And then 2008 hit. 2008 was a very challenging time for me and my business. Um, struggled for a number of years, three years of you know just really damage control, just trying to sort things out and work through the the chaos. Uh, it's probably the best way to put it. It was just a chaotic time and um, learned a lot. Learned what I, you know, would have done differently moving forward. You know, just saw some of the mistakes that were made, and that really allowed me to kind of put forth the, you know, plan for phase two. And so again, it took me about three years to even consider buying real estate again. And so 2008 through 2011, I didn't buy a thing. I just dealt with the the challenges that were ongoing with my with my prior business and. Um, but uh, uh, around 2011, I, I started, you know, the fire was still kind of burning. It was, it was like a pilot lamp at that point. It was, it was really low. I'd kind of like snuffed it out a little bit. I started a few other businesses not related to real estate because I needed income. And so I started other businesses that ultimately kept a, you know, somewhat of a roof over my head, I guess. But, um, uh, but that, that pilot lamp kept growing. It kept like trying to ignite. And, uh, and in 2011, I really started to acknowledge it and started looking um, 
for uh, for opportunities. But at that point, Andrew, the you know the landscape was very different. 2011 was very different than what pre 2008 was. I mean, ever, the world had basically changed. Um, and so I, I went on a, just a, an educational um, uh, journey, you know, talking to everyone that was in real estate that had either made it through the downturn or, or most of the folks were fairly new. Like they had just got in after the, the crash happened and um, just ed- educate myself on the, the, the capital markets, um, you know, where assets were training, what markets were still going through a lot of distress, which ones were coming back out of it, what have you. And uh, I did make the determination I was going to buy multifamily. Like I knew that I rebuilding, it seemed that it was just a much more efficient way comparing my prior assets of multifamily to single family. It was just a much more efficient way to regrow and rescale the business is to buy multifamily. It just made more sense. And um, also that's why I decided. However, on that journey of learning about multifamily in this new world, I was introduced to a guy by the name of Randy. Randy was a, a friend of a, a, of a friend of mine. And um, uh, I, I um, was introduced to him, just nothing more than expanding my network. Hey, you need to meet Randy. He's a cool guy. He was a banker for 30 years. He retired and he's got some real estate investments and he golfs all the time. Like that was kind of the introduction. And I went and had lunch with Randy and uh, come to find out he retired from, from banking and uh, ended up buying like uh, th- three mobile home parks up in uh, just north of the Tampa Bay area. And those were ultimately his retirement. They were, you know, larger communities. And uh, uh, Randy really convinced me over that two hour lunch with him of how great mobile home parks were and how they were so much better than multifamily, how they're so much better than any other asset class. And that I needed to really consider maybe looking into them a little bit more as I kind of went to rebuild things. And so that I literally left that lunch meeting, Andrew, and I was like, man, there's something to this. I don't know what it is. And there wasn't much information out there, like educational material out there. And I dug as much as I could, read as much as I could, met other mobile home park owners and talked to Randy a bunch more and and decided that I was going to, you know, kind of give myself a year to learn as much as I could about the space and then buy one. I wanted to buy one and either kind of prove or disprove uh, all these great things that Randy had to say about the space. And, and I did. Uh, it took me a little bit more than that 12 months. And I bought the first park up in Atlanta, a small little 34 space community. We still own it today. Awesome. Um, and it's a cash cow. It's, it keeps producing, keeps kicking out money on a monthly basis. And uh, and then I just, I, that worked out well. And we moved on from there. We saw that it was a, a really viable concept and asset class and bought the next one, bought the next one. And kind of, you know, the story, right? You, you went through the same thing. The first one worked out well, there was something to it. And, um, and you build a business out of it, which is what we did as well. So that was, uh, 2012 was when I actually bought that first park. And so eight years ago, eight years ago. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. And with that first park, cause my, I had a similar story and with my first park, my onsite manager was like, amazing. I inherited her from the previous owners and she was just fantastic. So that kind of gave me momentum, you know, and I, I went into the next properties thinking the same. Did you have a, a similar situation happen where that onsite manager was, was really good or did you have trouble? No, very, very opposite type of situation. So this property that we bought was probably one of the most distressed properties that I've ever bought even to date. Um, wow. And it was a bank-owned property. Uh, basically, how the story went was the prior owner, prior to losing it to the bank, he had owned it for a dozen plus years. He was a, the local slumlord. He just didn't, I mean, he was a slumlord. I'll leave it at that. He didn't do a good job of running the property. And at some point in time, um, uh, I forget which hurricane it was, but ultimately, at some point in time, there was a number of uh, FEMA uh, mobile homes that were going up for auction nearby. And he went to the local county. He had a lot of really older, older junky trailers in there. 
And he went to the, the county, which happens to be the, the, you know, the courts and the county office was like right across the street. Literally, they could see the mobile home park. So he went there and he asked for their permission to bring newer homes in. And they required that he you know, upgrade some of the infrastructure, the roads, what have you. And he went and bought uh, a number of, you know, literally only a couple year old um, three bedroom uh, FEMA homes. I mean, they're normal mobile homes. All the major mm-hmm. manufacturers were making them back then. And, um, and he brought them in there, you know, made the park nicer, and then literally continue with his old slumlord ways. And, but he, in, the, in the process, he, he pulled out like, or he took out like $1.6 million of debt to do this and uh, continued his old ways, default on the property, you know, because he just wasn't running it efficiently. And the bank took it back. When the bank took it back, they appointed a, uh, you know, a quarter appointed receiver and that management company just did a horrific job. So when we found this park, it, it had 30, uh, 34 homes in it. And uh, there was only two people living in the community. The other 32 homes had been ransacked. People stole the AC condenser units. Um, the, the management company had not shut off the water. And Atlantic does go through freezes. Normally once a year, it gets below freezing, at least for a week or two at a time. And so there was water leaks, busted pipes spraying everywhere. I mean, it was an Jeez. absolute disaster. The two people that were living there had not paid rent for the two plus years that that uh, quarter point receiver had taken over. And their total rents between lot rent and home rent was... Uh, like $385 a month. And this oh is like, an, and so anyway, so we looked at it and I'm like, well, that's a lot worse than what I thought. Um, but however, you know, I knew lot rents in that market were fairly strong. Um, you know, this thing had been on the market for a while. It was listed way too high. And um, we uh, we got the bank down. We toured all the units, gave the bank the video of the units in tears, how bad they were. We gave them an estimate of what it was going to cost us to rehab it, which was legitimate. It was like, you know, eight to 10 grand a home because we had to put new AC units in all kinds. I mean, wow. top to bottom rehabs, even though they were only like when we bought the park, they were um, the homes were only like seven years old. They weren't that old at all. Wow. And um, but we looked at my, my partner. And I looked at each other. And we're like, you know what? If we can get it for this price and the price that we came up with was what we valued those homes at, like if we fire sold every single one of those homes, if we just want to give them away, even in their existing condition, what were they worth? You know, and uh, we came up with a number of like seven or eight K is probably what they were worth, even in their existing state. And so if this thing just didn't work out, we could fire sell those homes and get out from underneath this. Um, then it was worth the risk. And ultimately we ended up buying the park for like 200 and I think it was like 210 grand. Uh, and that wow. included all those homes. Um, but the funny part of that story, Andrew, so let me, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling on here now, but the funny part of the story is we went to the, we always try to go to the local municipality and get the, you know, the city, the town, the village, whatever, get them on board with what we're about to do. If this is, if it's a turnaround, like we want, we want, we want to, you know, to build an alliance with them, let them know we're going to do some good things for their community. Um, and so we, his name was Bobby Cartwright, mayor, mayor, Bobby Cartwright, his office was right across the street, as was the chief of police. And, um, uh, I never met him. I didn't look him up online, but anyway, we, we called, we got an appointment set and um, uh, my partner, and I walk into the room with this whole like, you know, grand presentation of what, how we're going to turn this blighted place across the street from their office to, to this thing that they're proud of. And uh, we walked in the room, there was like 14 people in the room. They had the entire like staff. I mean, the chief of police, the, you know, the, the city council, all that was in there. It's a small little town, but um Bobby Mayor Cartwright was about a six foot four guy with a handlebar mustache. He was bald and he was very intimidating. He was uh, <laughs> he was a scary looking guy. You guys can Google him. Anyone's li- Google him. Mayor Bobby Cartwright in uh, in the city of Lovejoy, which is a little small town in Atlanta. And you'll see what I mean. 
And um, he had a stuffed fox on the wall and like a rifle on the wall. I mean, it was, oh my it was goodness. Kind of, yeah, it was kind of scary. And so he let us talk for 20 minutes or so with our plan of how we're going to make everything great. And he looked at us once we stopped talking. He said, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time here. I've been trying to shut that park down for years. Uh, it's been an eyesore. It's a drain of our resources. Our police are always there. I mean, the guy just rambled on. He was, he was not happy. And he basically said, take your money somewhere else. Don't spend it in my town because you're going to end up losing it. Wow. Like, oh, okay. We walked out of the meeting and had a little gathering between the two of us, my partner and I. I'm like, what should we do? That's, uh, that's pretty, that's rough. And we're going to have a little bit of a rough go here <laughs> in the beginning. And I'd say. We, we decided to buy it. Long story short, we bought it. Built a really good friendship with the um, code enforcement. Like we befriended her. And then ultimately, um, uh, uh, we turned around the park. Eight months later, it took us a lot of time to rehab every home. Turned around the park. I got a call from uh, Mayor Bobby Cartwright about nine months into it, apologizing to me. Personally, picked up the phone, called me and apologized for the way he acted. And uh, even wrote a referral letter that we could use for other mayors or, or you wow. know, town council when we ran into similar situations, <laughs> so, which is common, which is common. Oh wow. yeah. So we were literally in a, in the middle of another debate with another town. We were buying a park in North Carolina and he wrote a letter that we could use for that, that mayor, but also, you know, kind of a, a blank template that we could use and they would use him as a reference. So that's wow. Cool. <laughs> that, that's an amazing story. Wow. <laughs> so to kind of jump in here, what would you say is the hardest part about the business, the mobile home park ownership operations business? What would you say, you know, how did you guys manage that initial rehab? Did you have to go up to Atlanta a lot? I take it you were in the, you know, in the Tampa, Florida area, right? That's correct. Yeah, no, to answer your question, yes, uh, that particular property, and, and they were all park-owned homes. I mean, so we owned every single one of them, um, mm. and every single one needed a massive rehab. Now, uh, I'll give some additional context. Again, I I owned a lot of property in the past. I've done tons of rehab. I run multiple construction crews. And so like, I wasn't scared of that part of it. I knew it was going to be an uphill battle because it was an eight hour drive. You know, Atlanta is kind of a weird location for where we're at. It was about a seven and a half hour drive from my door to that door, or it's only like a, you know, 50 or maybe an hour long flight. But by the time you go to the airport here, fly, get a car and do all like, it ends up being like, very yeah. similar time and you don't have as much flexibility. So we drove all the time. Every week, I, once a week, we drive up and um, spend two days there. You know, we assembled, you know, a hodgepodge batch of crew, construction crews um, and, and did our best to, um, to manage them while we were there and then manage them from afar for five days. We had an on-site manager we brought in um, that, you know, that helped us as well, kind of eyes and ears. But the biggest challenge with that property, Andrew, was it was a complete disaster when we bought it. So even attracting an on-site manager there, uh, I'm, I'm not even joking. Like every single unit, um, the bank had taken away all the stairs because they didn't want people getting, they thought they would keep, keep people out from getting inside the unit. So they took away all the stair. Every stair was missing. Um, AC units were missing. Um, there was, it was known as the local place you could dump stuff. So like people are still coming and dumping. I mean, it was just a disaster. And we finally found a manager that would, you know, that kind of could get on board with it. We rehabbed her unit first up front and kind of kept it away from all the other mess. And um, she stuck around for about a year while we went through this. And so that was incredibly helpful, but it was just, it was a lot of work. It wasn't a scalable model. Like there's no way we'd, we would, we would probably do that today. Um, but I mean, for the first park, uh, we learned a lot of lessons, uh, went through a lot of challenges and, um, and again, it, it proved to be very successful. It's, um, you know, I think we're all into it for, 
for about 390. Uh, we did a re- cash out refi, I don't know, three years ago and put all of our initial cash back out of it. You know, we, we keep low leverage on our assets. So, so we literally took out a, I don't know, $450,000 loan and it appraised for like 1.25, you know, so it's, uh, wow. and, and it performs really well. So, but the biggest challenge with that one was the distance. Uh, it was just a weird situation. And it, that big of a value add turnaround being far away, if you can't be present and you don't have the flexibility to actually be on site often or have someone on your team uh, be on site often, I, I can't imagine doing that. It would be very, very tough to do. I'm not saying it's not possible, but it would be very challenging and you'd probably get ripped off by contractors left and right. And your, your one-year project would take three years. And uh, Oh, definitely. And w- would you say like, you know, take that, that one park out of the, out of the picture, mm-hmm. you know, just mobile home parks in general, what would you say is the hardest part about the business? Is it turnarounds or is it something, you know, collections, you know, just the business as a whole outside of that one specific project, which obviously was a huge value add, you know, turnaround. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, assuming that you can find the opportunities, what have you, you got the financing and things like that. So like the debt isn't a problem, the equity is not a problem. Um, yeah, you know, I think a lot of people downplay the day-to-day operations of a park. Now, I'm not talking about the perfect A-class or five-star community with 100% tenant-owned homes, direct build, city water, city mm. sewer, trash. I'm not talking about that part because those are, those are anomalies. Um, music to my ears, those, those parks. Yeah, right. I mean, they, they, they very few of those exist. We actually own sure. a few like that, but um, very few of them exist. In fact, uh, even most parks that would be deemed to be stabilized um, still have some type of turnaround component, some smaller, some greater than others. And so I think the, uh, the, the, the biggest challenge of owning parks is just um, uh, really the, the managing the operations, uh, you know, and there's a lot of variables there. So I mean, we, can, we can dissect a little bit. You know, I think one of the bigger challenges, um, especially if you're buying a park from a mom and pop that's owned it for a long time, it's a major shock to the current residents. It just is. Yeah. You know, people don't like change. And so it takes time to build that trust. Um, it takes time to get them comfortable again that a new owner just stepped in after them knowing the old owner for 30 plus years. Um, I think that's challenging. I think it's challenging to find quality managers you know, the, the staff that are going to run your day to day that are, you know, there's multiple different responsibilities to the on-site manager. And this is assuming you've got a park that's, let's say it's, you know, 150 sites or smaller. You know, normally you kind of, that on-site manager is not going to be the, you know, the rent collector and, and you know, and, and scan checks or deposit checks, what have you, hand out notices. They're going to be that person. But if you got homes that are for rent or for sale, they also become a salesperson. And very few times you find that one person that does both really, really well. Um, You either got a really good communicator that just can kind of, you know, they're they're an organized office person. They can run that part, but they suck at sales. Or you got a really good salesperson, but they are horrible when it comes to scanning the checks on time and handing out late notices on time, what have you. And so um, I think the operations, again, are just downplayed a little bit in this niche. Um, A lot of folks think it's very passive investment. And it's just, it's not. Uh, It's, it's, uh, it's, it's hands-on. Some are more hands-on than others, but it, it takes time and energy to put the systems in place. You got to rely a lot on your on-site staff, assuming the park's like outside of your immediate backyard, right? It's not like in where you live, it's farther away. Yep. Um, and then, uh, you know, some other layers there is, uh, which I know what you're really, you're really good at, Andrew, is one of the areas you shine is the, I think what another area that's big, really very, very downplayed as far as the 
ease of doing it is infill. You know, yeah. I, you know, I see parks getting pushed. Oh, it's got a uh, 50 vacant lots that, that equals this much upside, you know, fantastic. Uh, those, those homes would just show up one day. Like they, <laughs> you know, it doesn't take energy to get them there. Um, and I see a lot of people paying a lot of money for that upside. Like it, times have changed. Right. And, uh, um, but you can speak to like the chat, like it's, it's a logistical challenge, um, to, if you got the lot there and it's already to go, it's still a logistical challenge to get that home in and get it set up. You'll get all the trades involved that need to be involved and you'll pull all the necessary strings and make that happen in an efficient manner at scale. So, yeah, at scale being the key word is, you know, if you got, if you got five or 10 going on, that's different than if you have 50 vacant lots you're trying to fill. So it's, uh, it's definitely one of the more difficult parts of the business. I agree. Infill and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the trades that you're dealing with, you know, within the mobile home park asset class are, are different than if you're a general contractor working on, you know, a, a multifamily complex. You know, your, your mobile home transporters, you know, just aren't the most sophisticated business people most times. So it can be, you know, a struggle. For sure. Do you a mobile home transporter? You own a company now. I know (laughs) a guy. I'm joking. (laughs) (laughs) I know a guy. Yeah. But so, so Kevin, what would you say are the most important things that passive investors need to look for when investing into mobile home parks? You know, what would you say are like the biggest risks that, that a passive investor would have uh, investing? Yeah. I mean, hands down, it's the, it's the person they're going to invest in, right? The sponsor that they're going to trust their money with because, it could be the best deal in the world in the best market that has the highest demand for affordable housing. But if it's a, a you know, if the sponsor doesn't know what he's doing, you know, the, 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 the general partner that's going to run the asset, if yeah. they don't know what they're doing, they don't know how to do it. They're going to take that really quality, high quality deal and they're going to run it into the ground. I mean, so hands down, it's absolutely the track record um, of that sponsor. Not, and maybe not just in the mobile home park space, cause everyone's got to do their first deal. Right. Sure. Um, However, I am I am of the opinion, this is just my opinion, that I think you, if you're going to start in a different asset class, even if you're experienced somewhere else, I'm of the opinion you should probably risk your own money first before you go raising capital from others. That's just my opinion. Um, I think you should prove your concept first before you go look to take money from someone else on a kind of a brand new venture. Um, but with that being said, um, you know, there's a lot of folks that are coming from other asset classes into mobile home parks. Maybe they were in multifamily or single family or other types of commercial real estate where they might be really experienced and have a good track record, but maybe brand new to that space. And um, you just want to make sure that whoever they are, that they truly know, you know, it's not just theoretical, like they, they've actually done it before, even if it's not in parks, they've actually put into practice what they're preaching to you. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, hands down, that's it. Do you have any tips on how a passive investor would vet an operator? Yeah, again, back to track record. I mean, I think just you know, really digging into what is their history, what have they done, um, you know, how has that played out, you know, as far as have they had other investors, you know, if they have, if they've had other investors in the past and other ventures, then you know, ask to speak with a, a handful of those investors and find out what their experience was. Um, you know, uh, I, I've seen even sponsors go as far as doing background checks, right? Which I think I, 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 I kind of like, right? I mean, you shouldn't have anything to hide. Uh, I'm not being spon- limited partners doing background checks on sponsors is what I meant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a sponsor shouldn't have anything to hide. And so, 
you can really put a really beautiful marketing spin on anything. I mean, just go to any crowdfunding site, look at any of the broker packages. It's very easy to make something seem so pretty and like just, it's a no brainer. Like this thing will work no matter who takes it over, right? I mean, gosh, this is just a hands down screamer of a deal. It doesn't matter if the sponsor is not the right person, if they don't have that track or they don't have that experience. And so again, you got to dig a little deeper and find out who they are, what they've done, who they've worked with, even check references of past business partners, right? Um, I mean, that normally folks that have, um, uh, you know, that they've been in other businesses, uh, um, and I know things might not always end amicably, but it shouldn't be a, a trend that if you go back and actually see what they've done in the past where none of them have ended amicably, right? They've always had bad partnerships that have split up, right? Like that might be a red flag. Um, sure. You know, just dive deep, uh, simply put dive deep into the sponsor and uh, what it is they've done in the past. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. That's a, that's a great tip. Do you have any other tips? I mean, like, are there any other things that you would suggest Andrew to passive investors to get more comfortable with a, uh, with a passive investment with a, with a sponsor? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm big on track record, you know, look yeah. at what they've done before. And, you know, if you're taking risk to be the, 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 the sponsor's first partner in the asset class, you need to just understand that there's more risk there and you need to get more of a reward for doing that. So I agree. Looking at the track record is, is going to be key. Yeah. Like I said, I, I like the idea of proving the concept. I mean, it's, it's probably the, the most common piece of advice I give to like new investors. It doesn't matter whether they're looking to buy apartments or um, you know, single family home portfolios or mobile home parks or anything else. If their goal is to um, build a business out of it. Right. But they don't have a lot of money. You know, they're, you know, they're, um, you know, maybe they don't have enough money to do it themselves. They need to bring in capital at some point in order to, to achieve their goals of how big they want to be. I think that it's incredibly important to, even if it's, Hey, I want to go own 500 unit apartment buildings. Great. How about go figure out how to buy exactly a, you know, the similar model of what you intend to do with an apartment. But like, so maybe you're going to be a value add play. Like you want to go on and buy a, a C plus 500 unit apartment complex and you want to upgrade all the units and amenities package, what have you, and make it into a B minus, right? That's your objective. So you can raise rents, do that with a four or fourplex, do the, do it with something that you can do yourself, the same exact model, um, prove that concept. And then, then you could truly speak in a marketing package to an investor. You can give a real pitch of like, here's what I've done. Here was my business plan. Here's how I executed on it. Here's how long I projected it would take me. Here's how long it really took me. Here are the challenges I saw along the way. Here's how I overcame them. And then here's exactly how I'm going to do it on this 500 unit apartment complex. Do you want to come along for the ride? Right. It's a little bit yeah. more of a, um, uh, you know, easy uh, to follow story, you know, yeah, it, it just it, it can give the more comfortability to an investor as well, that they've actually done something. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, so going into your experience in mobile home parks, can you explain the value add components that you've implemented? You know, a lot of listeners come from different asset classes like multifamily and there's, there's just different value add components in mobile home parks specifically. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, um, from a high level, um, you know, operational expenses, you know, uh, situations where there's maybe too much payroll, where they've got multiple staff that aren't really necessary. Um, you know, they've got, uh, uh, you know, water leaks are not taken care of. So their water and their their sewer bill is is two or three times the amount of what it should be. So just really reducing the operational load on the asset itself. That's, uh, that's one of the big ones. I mean, you and I could probably both look at a PL very quickly and determine, you know, where there's excess. And so getting comfortable with understanding that side of the business of 
what it should be and versus what it is today and how to you know cut that down that's that's one of the big ways to add value you know another way is uh with utilities a lot of these parks were built many many moons back and back then water and sewer wasn't very expensive now it is and so a lot of them were built to where that was kind of factored into the uh, the lot rent you know water and sewer is just part of the lot rent it was not built individually However, water and sewer has gotten much more expensive over the years. And so now um, there's a lot of parks, you know, that, that you'll come across that it's included in lot rent. However, we'll go in and put some meters in on each individual lot and then we'll bill back the residents for their you know, respective usage. Um, you know, we, we bill back trash, you know, depending on the market. You know, some markets you'll find that it's there's um, there's themes uh, like you'll run across some markets that. It's just common. Every mar- every park in that market, the trash is included. It just is. And um, uh, a lot of times we won't touch it if, if that's kind of the theme across the board. However, in other communities, you'll come across where trash has been built back by other communities, but in your community just bought, it's not. And so we'll pass that back. Um, uh, you know, a- another way is to do info like we had talked about, actually, you know, uh, bringing homes into the, any of the vacant lots that exist in the park. Uh and, uh, you know, new or used, it depends on, you know, kind of what your flavor is. Uh, we've done both. And so that's, I call that like, that's like high hanging fruit, right? There's like low hanging fruit and there's high hanging fruit. Low hanging fruit is operational changes, uh, lot rent increase, you know, lot rents are below market. I'd say that middle, middle of the road would be sub metering utilities and building that back you know, or middle of the tree as far as hanging fruit. Submetering utilities, there's cost there. There's like some vendors you got to get involved and it's a process. And then the high hanging fruit is infill, right? Like those are like the three categories I like to place it in. And so that's what we look for. Any park that we buy, we want to know where there's an opportunity to increase the value. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, those are all great value add strategies. Did Um, I miss any? Did I miss any that uh, that you know? Is there any secrets uh, that that you know about that I don't that you want to share with me? (laughs) I mean, just just the infill is is what I've spent a lot of time on. That's the that's the high hanging fruit. You know, just takes a lot more effort. But uh, you know, that's another thing when you're vetting an operator. Have they done infill before? Because that's something that I've even learned the hard way. You know, (laughs) we 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 bought some parks in Illinois, and uh, we we plan to bring some new homes in, and you know got accustomed to the HUD process for site prep, you know, and what they require for concrete expense. So, you know, learned, uh, learned quite a bit about site prep and the, the grading of the lots yeah. and the, the concrete that needs to be 48 inches deep. And, you know, it's not cheap. It's not, not cheap to pour that, that amount of concrete. That's so, a lot of concrete. Yep. yep. Yeah. And, I, and I respect what you, what you've done. I know you've, um, you've really put a lot of emphasis and focus on that side of your business, which is, it's really a, it's a, that, that is a weak link of a lot of uh, operators in this space. And again, I think, as we mentioned in the beginning, it's one of those areas of the business that is usually downplayed. Uh, and I can just promise anyone that's listening, if you're looking to get into the park business, it's not, it's not rocket science. It's just, it, 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 it's challenging. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes capital. And um, it's uh, theoretically, it's easy, but uh, put into, you know, to practice it, it's um, probably one of the more challenging. It is the most challenging value add components of a mobile home park. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. What, Kevin, what does the perfect mobile home park look like for you? Where is it located? And, and what does that look like? Yeah, the perfect one. I think I kind of almost outlined um, that definition in the beginning, but uh, I'd say that it would be very you know, close to where I live. It would be down here in Florida. That, that I don't have to deal with plowing snow. 
um, or frozen pipes or any of that other stuff that comes with the cold weather states. Uh, it would be direct build city water and sewer. It would be, you know, the trash is part of the, the tax bill. So we don't have to deal with that. Um, 100% tenant owned homes and probably 55 plus, you know, being that they, most of them are on fixed incomes, SSI or have pensions, what have you. And so there's not many, many reasons why they don't have the ability to pay. That would be the perfect <laughs> park. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds like a, like a good property. Within uh, Sunrise Capital, do you guys, you know, what, what are the, what does the typical park look like that you guys are buying? Yeah. So, you know, and we bought everything. Um, well, I wouldn't say we've ever bought a, a one-star park. And when I think of a one-star park, I think of like a junky trailer park really on the wrong side of the tracks. No matter what you do, it's not going to attract the right clientele. No matter how much lipstick you put on it, it's still going to be ugly. It's going to be full of drug, sex, and rock and roll. So that's like a one-star in my opinion. Like that's my internal definition of it. Um, and so then two-star would be maybe a similarly junky park or a rough park, but it's in a good part of town. It's got a good school district. You know, if, if you clean it up, the good people will come like that's a two star and then three star just kind of goes up from there. But um, so everything that we've ever really bought is a, you know, would be a two star or above. And we have basically own the entire range today. I mean, uh, we have a couple of really nice assets up in, up in New York and Maryland that I would say are, you know, depending on your, how you define it would be a four or five star uh, uh, category. Um, and then we've got a number of like, I'd say two and a half. No, nothing that we ever buy the two star stays at two as a two star, right? Like our objective is to get it to a three star, go and yeah. pave roads, make improvements, bring in some nicer homes, skirt homes, you know, all that, you know, to make the aesthetic improvements needed to get to a three star. And so I'd say that the normal deal we buy nowadays is a two and a half star, two to two and a half star, maybe a three star to start. And uh, our goal is to bump it up either a half a star or a star over the period of, uh, you know, year to two years, what have you. Um, uh, the average size that we're buying nowadays is, you know, probably about 120 spaces, but we'll look at stuff down to, you know, 80 is kind of like our minimal threshold. Um, and uh, maybe even smaller if it's in an immediate area where we own something else. And obviously our preference is just like everyone, city water, city sewer, but we own communities that are on, we've got, we've got septics, we've got uh, a few wells, we've got, um, one wastewater treatment plant. Uh, we do not own any lagoons. Uh, and I don't think I have an interest in owning a lagoon, but you know, we, we're comfortable with private utilities. Uh, so long as we, we get engineers involved, we do really deep due diligence on the private utilities, but we can get comfortable with that. That's not a, that's not out of the question. So um, uh, I think that, I think I've nailed, nailed all the, the key components of uh, kind of what the norm is for us, but you know, we just want, we want good, we want opportunities that have a little meat left on the bone. Um, you know, we want them in good markets, good locations, good school districts, um, you know, parts of the country that are growing, you know, that, that the people aren't leaving, people aren't, you know, it's not a mass exodus um, yeah. that people are attracted to. And obviously the last thing is that's incredibly important is that there's a, a large demand for affordable housing, right? I mean, um, and I'll give you an example where there is not a large demand for affordable housing is Flint, Michigan. That, that's just the one that comes to mind. I always beat up Flint, but um the, you know, the median, in, uh, the median, um, home price in Flint, I think is like $20,000. And so I don't really think there's a need for, for everything's affordable in Flint. Um, yeah. and so there's a lot of big parks up there that have a lot of vacancies. They were probably nice in their heyday, but I don't think that you would be able to go in one of those communities and infill it and expect to actually, um, attract yeah. quality clientele. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you see them floating around online and, for these crazy double digit cap rates, but yeah, 
not the yeah don't don't be lured in by the crazy double digit cap rate it's one of two things either it's in a just a horrific market or the brokers uh, uh, evaluating evaluating it wrong by actually capitalizing the park on home income. That's one of the, that's it's one or the other. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about Sunrise Capital and what are you guys you know up to lately? Yeah. No, that's, that's a great question. So um, so we're a you know a boutique private equity firm that specializes in um, mobile home parks. Uh, also, we've added recently added another asset class to the. Um, to the equation, which is parking assets, you know, surface parking lots, parking garages, which um, at this point, we're not putting too much of an emphasis on just today, you know, with the pandemic and what have you. Um, but uh, so mobile home parks is our core competency. And, uh, you know, over the last, when I initially got started, I bought, you know, parks with my own money or with a partner, you know, one other, you know, one other partner. And, and then about five years ago, we, you know, formed what's known as Sunrise Capital Investors and uh, it started raising capital uh, via a fund model. Um, you know, to purchase mobile home assets across the country. So today we we own assets in, uh, and now it's 12 different states. We just sold a park. So 12 different states and we've got uh, 19 assets and now we're right around 1900 lots in total. Um, awesome. So as far as what we're doing today, we're, you know, we, uh, we took a, we've kind of, we've just, we've been a little calm over the past, you know, four or five months with COVID, just kind of waiting and watching to see, you know, what would, uh, what would play out, you know, just being, I'm overly conservative, especially after going through 2008. It's um, probably to my detriment. I mean, there's probably opportunities that we've missed on because I'm overly conservative, uh, but um, there's always going to be deals out there. I think the important thing to understand is like never get caught up in that, that feeding frenzy. Um, I saw it back in 06 and 07 before the crash, as far as like people like, if I don't buy today, there's never going to be a deal left. Right. And I'm, yeah. I might as well overpay because there's not going to be a deal. Nothing's going to be left. The price is going to keep going up, up, up. And so don't ever get caught up, um, in that anxiety feeling of like, you got to buy just to buy and know that there will always be opportunity, no matter what part of the market cycle we're in, there's always opportunity. Sometimes you just got to dig a little harder to find it. Yeah. Definitely. So are you guys currently raising right now or? We're about to, we're about to roll our third fund. Yeah. We're about to roll our third mobile home park growth and income fund here. Um, we're shooting for uh, mid September to, uh, to push it out. So uh, awesome. it, it was, it was supposed to go out in April and uh, as March rolled around, we realized that it probably wouldn't be the right timing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, really our focus for the past again, five months has been on our current assets, make sure that we had, you know, necessary liquidity, make sure that we focused on uh, only projects that made sense. So we kind of halted a lot of CapEx projects for the first couple of months of COVID. Uh, we've resumed pretty much all operations as normal across the board. And um, however, I do think, Andrew, I, I think that, I think what's, <clears throat> you know, collections across the board have been really strong. Residential real estate in general, mobile home parks, multifamily, you know, uh, residential rentals. It's been incredibly strong across the board. However, I'm, I'm of the mind that it really isn't a true barometer of, of, of where we're at, you know, in the economy. And, uh, and, and really what I mean by that is I think there's a number of residents, I don't know how many in all of our communities, your communities, mine, and everyone else that's listening that are only paying their rent because they're in, they're getting stimulus checks, right? They're making, they're out of a job and they're making <clears throat> substantial amount of money, sometimes more than what they were at their job. And whenever this blows all over, you know, whether it's November when the election happens or whenever, but whenever that stimulus stops, I do think that there will be some, uh, some tougher roads ahead for collections. There will be, you know, we'll probably have a double digit unemployment rate. That means that there's going to be people in our communities, all of them, that don't have the ability to pay. They literally don't have a job. There's no job to go to. So 
Um, but, uh, but time will tell, but I, th- I, just, I still think that we're in the most resilient asset class that exists. Uh, there's no better affordable housing option than mobile home parks. And um, I always like to say there's, you could pick any, any mobile home park in any of the markets that you own, any of the mobile home parks in the markets that we own. And there is, there is not a better option, a cheaper option for a, a family of four, a family of six, whatever the size family to, to rent a three bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom unit you know, for them to live in um, that is cheaper than what they could live in that mobile home park, assuming they own that home. You know, average lot rents are $300 a month you know, across the country, give or take. There's nowhere in any of those markets that anyone could find to live for $300 a month, probably not even a studio like room or apartment you know, for $300 a yeah. month. And so I think hands down, we have the most affordable quality housing option that exists today. And I think it will continue that way for forever. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, what do you think about the mobile home park asset prices? Do you think that they will be affected anytime soon? Or you know, what's your, your take yeah. on the future of that? If I had to give an opinion of what might shake out over the next uh, couple of years, and I don't know if it necessarily has to do with COVID exactly, but <clears throat> I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of new operators getting into this space, a lot like a ridiculous amount that are buying parks that are that are uh, that are paying you know prices that um, we would we personally would have a hard time you know justifying for a particular asset you know, knowing that uh, the margins are very thin and that it's going to be a lot of work to you know to even uh, hopefully meet those projections. And so I, I think there'll be a lot of folks that get wake up calls over the, and I don't wish that on anyone, but I think there'll be a lot of operators that have bought that will get wake up calls, uh, you know, that bought based on a pro forma that, you know, ultimately weren't able to <clears throat> kind of meet that business plan that was originally mapped out. It became much harder, much more challenging, much more costly for them to do that. So I think there'll probably be some, some, some parks that come back around that maybe were yeah. overpaid for only due to lack of, um, operational ability by the, you know, by the sponsor and also overpaying, right? Just, um, we were selling some assets right now. We've got some parks under contract and, um, you know, there's way smarter people than I. And so, but I, I would tell you that I probably wouldn't be a buyer at any of the prices that our parks are selling for today, but that doesn't mean anything. That just means I'm, maybe I'm too conservative and we won't buy as many parks over the coming years, but I'd rather be conservative and have, you know, bigger margins. Yeah. And have a buffer because you always need a buffer. I just, um, I don't like playing the thin margin game. It doesn't work. Yeah, no, definitely. And I've noticed a lot of, uh, you know, people that are from the multifamily space or other asset classes coming in that contact me and, you know, kind of want more information about, you know, how to set up operations. And, you know, they're going to manage these assets from a, a high rise in New York City. And it's like, yeah. I, don't, I don't know how you're going to do that efficiently and manage these, you know, huge value add you know, turnarounds from thousands of miles away, you know, at some point you're going to have to get some boots on the ground and that's, you know, getting more and more difficult to do with, with COVID. So it's a, it's an interesting market right now for yeah. sure. I mean, I think it's, it might be a little different if, if they're only out buying, you know, institutional grade or, st- you know, fully stabilized larger properties that have, you know, that come with a staff, you know, they're three, 400 space parks, you know, if they're, you know, if they're three-star assets, but they've got, you know, a full-time maintenance person, they've got a manager, an assistant manager, they've got like a, you know, it's a, it's more of an in-place business than that mm-hmm. of a, you know, 80 space value add community that is, you know, a thousand miles away from where they're located. Like that's just, you can only, you can only afford to have one manager there. Um, more than likely their, their pay scale is going to be fairly low in the grand scheme of things. Um, so you get what you pay for. And, uh, you know, all the rest of that is challenging vendors, dealing with vendors, 
I think it would be a little bit easier moving forward with vendors because now there's, there's people out of work. Um, and so I think that the, you know, have a little bit easier time finding contractors, but I can tell you, I don't know if you've experienced the same thing up until COVID hit for the past like year and a half, we've had across the board an incredibly difficult time finding quality contractors because there's so much work. There was so much work out there. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking like racking our brains, uh, trying to find people, uh, you know, even willing to pay for it, you know, like pay a very high dollar amount and still not finding people that are, um, you know, here's what they get the choice. They get to work on a mobile home or go work in a single family home. Right. Yeah. You get paid the same amount. You know, their choice is going to be go work in a probably air conditioned single family home versus a hot, you know, humid yeah. mobile home. Gotta crawl under, <laughs> crawl under the home and get, That's you know, it. get in the underbelly. Yeah. No, I've had, uh, the, so we've had challenges with that too. Um, time will tell if that, if, if it, if it eases up a little bit with more people being out of work, but um, yeah. So. so tell us, you know, a little bit, we'll, we'll kind of summarize it up here, but tell me a little bit about your management team and, and operations and, and how you've built that up. Yeah. I mean, so just very similar to most other park owners, we've got an onsite staff. Um, you know, we've got, you know, either one or two people, depending on the size of the park that, that actually are at the community. Um, if it's a big enough park, we'll have maybe a part-time or full-time maintenance guy. Most of our parks, it's hard to justify that. Um, uh, and so most of the time we just have go-to vendors, you know, for, for that type of work. Um, we don't have any, any construction crew on payroll per se. And so, uh, anyway, so to back up a little bit, we've got on-site managers and we've got a, we just have one regional at this point in time that kind of covers uh, all the bases. Um, he's based here out of Florida. He's our, you know, we call him a director of operations cause he does more than just, he's more, more than just regional responsibilities. Uh, he's more integral in our company and the operations as well. And so uh, he oversees all those on-site community managers. We've got um, a construction manager uh, who handles all of our CapEx, you know, manages and hires vendors and uh, handles timelines on all of our CapEx projects. Um, he's the only probably higher level position on our team that's actually not based in Florida. And so he's up in New York. And so he, again, he deals with all of our vendors, contractors, uh, infills. He's out, you know, he finds used homes or works with the on-site managers to track down used homes in the local marketplace, get them moved in, deal with the movers, the toters and all that. And then we've got a, we've changed up our structure a good bit over the last couple of years. And so as far as, you know, we got a behind the scenes accounting, you know, we've got a couple of accounting staff and what have you. We've got a, a CFO and then Sales and marketing is a side of our business that we've changed up a, a great deal. And I think it's something interesting we could talk about here that you know could be of value to you and some of the other people listening is we used to allow our on-site managers to be the point person um, for, you know, we, we'd have them be the person that placed the ads for homes that were available for sale or lease and also, you know, the inbound calls for those available units. And we found that it was just very hard to, you know, create accountability. It just is incredibly challenging to create accountability and consistency of the message that was being given out. And, you know, just uh, it's, it was hard to uphold like, you know, uh, a company brand um, with having, you know, 16, 17, 18 different managers manage that, that part of the business. And so what we did is we hired one dedicated person internally. Uh, his name David. He's our, he's our direct point on the sales and marketing funnel before it gets sorted out to each of the individual managers. He also does follow-up quality control. So after they go see the, after a resident, prospective resident goes to see the home, he follows back up with them. He calls them, you know, he's, he's incentivized to call them and actually get a follow-up survey of what their visit was like, 
Um, did the manager show up on time? What's the unit clean? What do you think of the community, the location, what have you? And that's been a game changer in our business, having that middle point person. So he not only places all our ads and manages all, all the ads that go out, all the available units, um, but he also handles all the inbound, either email inquiries or phone calls related to our available units. And then one other piece of that is we use a, we use a program called ShowMojo, which allows us to basically set up virtual appointments. And so each one of our onsite managers has a dedicated time slots throughout the week of when they'll do showings. David's got a link to each one of those managers. And so when he gets a prospect on the phone, he can just send that prospect a link to say, here, go ahead and click this. You know, they'll take you to the calendar. You pick a time slot that works best for you. And then all that info gets sent to the community manager when they're going to show up, it gets put on their calendar. And so David can hold accountability because he knows he's got the master calendar. And, um, and so it's just, a, it's a very seamless process and, uh, and follow up um, so that we don't have anything fall through the cracks. We don't have the manager not answering the phones, um, you know, being mean to people, right? All that, all that kind of stuff. So yeah. that's, that's been a big game, yeah. game changer. Yeah, absolutely. That's been a big, big game changer in our business. And, um, and, uh, and then, you know, David, you know, David, he gets incentivized when we sell homes. And so like, there's not a point in time where like, you know, uh, you know, he, he, he'd rather go do something out or he's out in the, out in the field and he's not answering the phone or anything like that. Like he's sitting at that desk and that's all he does all day long is post ads and actually answer the phone. And then we incentivize him when a home actually sells, not as much as we do the onsite manager, but we incentivize him. And so the follow-up, the follow-up, the follow-up, which is key, just like anything in sales, right? Like typically you have to follow up like you know, five to seven times or, or, you know, touch base five to seven times before you actually make a sale. And so like he, he is on top of these people, man, until they say, leave me alone. I don't want to <laughs> buy that unit. He is all over them. And so that's great. Um, I'll give you an example of how well that's played out for our business. We, we tested the waters with handing off our property management at the end of 2018. And we ultimately took it back in house, uh, uh, October of 2019. So last October we took it back in house and I'll just leave it at that. It wasn't in the best, it wasn't as the same conditions when we handed it off. And so we basically took back in about, we had about, throughout our entire portfolio, we had about 110 vacant park on homes that needed rehab. Um, some very, very, very intense rehabs, like, you know, like the, the 10 and $12,000 rehabs. Um, and so we knocked it out on the construction side. We just kicked ass. Um, we, I mean, we literally crushed it. And so David obviously had to crush it as well. Once we were getting these, we were just pumping, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, getting these things turned. And so from middle of October, uh, basically through, uh, the end of March, we rehabbed and sold 93 homes (laughs) and five months and five months. And that was over holidays too. And that was in parts of the country where it was even hard to find contractors. So we had a challenge. We had find contractors, manage the damn rehabs, uh, which is in where winter, the construction manager, all kinds of variables. But we, but, but it wouldn't have worked if David also, like he kicked ass and he was just like working balls of the wall. I mean, like nonstop. I mean, we, we, we allowed him to work overtime if he wanted. He, he, he took that on and, um, but we absolutely kicked ass. And so we wouldn't have been able to do that. I don't think if we had just solely relied on each one of the individual community managers to sell homes in the market homes, it's, it wouldn't have gone that well. So, yeah, no, that's a great, great tidbit. We have someone dedicated to marketing as well. And, uh, it's a lot of value. Um, so last question, you know, what are your typical like general partner splits and, and how is that set up? Um, you know, what type of fees do you normally charge on, you know, on a normal, 
fund, you know, so investors could be aware of that? Yeah, I don't think there's a, I'm not going to try to avoid the answer because there's not really a typical. And the reason why I say that sure. is like our fund one, um, you know, ended up being different than fund two. We learned things, the market changed. And so um, I'll answer it this way, because I think this is a more appropriate way to answer it. We don't have fund three rolled out yet. And so I don't want to speak to that in the event something changes um, sure. in between that and this show. And so I'll answer it this way. You know, we know our investors really, really well. We know what their their ultimate financial goals are. We know what type of returns they're looking to achieve by investing in our in the partnership with us. And so, obviously, the market shifted. You can't buy deals at the same price you could have bought them five years ago. Just you, you can. I shouldn't say you can't, but that's not the norm, right? Like the pr- prices yeah. have definitely gone up. Cap rates have come down. And so we we built our our pref structure on the front end. And we build our fee structure and then also the waterfall structure, you know, the splits. Uh, we build that, we back into that based on what type of deals were, we intend to be buying. Like now, the deals are very different than they were a couple of years ago. So what, int- what type of deals do we intend to be buying based on, you know, project returns of that quality of deal, of the location, the size, what have you, all, all, the, all, the, all the details there. Uh, and we back into what the splits and what the fund structure needs to be in order to comfortably know that we're going to be able to achieve um, what we've projected to our, our investors, if that makes sense. And so generally speaking, like our next fund, more than likely, again, I don't hold me to this, but there's going to be somewhere between a seven and eight pref. Uh, it's going to be a 70-30 split. So 70 to the LPs, 30 to the GPs. That was different on our last, our last fund we just did was a 60-40 and the very first one was a 50-50. So it's changed over time based on the deals. Um, uh, as far as the asset and uh, acquisition fee, I don't, we don't have it nailed down just yet. And so I'm not going to speak to that, but we do take an acquisition fee. We take an asset management fee. Um, uh, and uh, so, that, I mean, that's the high level perspective of yeah. how our, our fund's structured. That's more uh, than so, enough. Yeah. I yeah, appreciate yeah, you sharing that yeah. with, with everybody just so they th- kind of have a ballpark. But I think it's important. I get the question all the time. In fact, I literally just had the question earlier today with a couple guys that are, they own a couple parks actually, and they're looking to, you know, uh, raise capital. And they're like, how do you do it? I'm like, well, I can give you like the, the basic mechanics of how it works, but like, like my structure might not work for you because I don't know who your investors are. I don't know what their expectations are. And you really, you can easily back into it. If you, you get to know your investors and what they're, what they're hoping to achieve financially, and then you identify the types of parks you intend to buy and kind of uh, model out what you think the returns are going to be on those, those parks, um, you can back into what the structure needs to be at the fund. Uh, now, if you're doing deal specific, it's it, it's way easier, right? Like you can, I mean, it's much easier to figure out what that structure needs to be if it's one deal at a time. The fund's a little bit different. We're kind of yeah. trying to plan out for the next, what's the world going to look like 12 to 18 months from now? What type of deals we're going to be able to buy? What have you? And uh, we're trying to project that out. And uh, as we know, things change over be, time. It like, should be interesting, you know, to see how things play out 12 to 18 months yeah, from now. That's for sure. We've done really good with the last two funds. We've, uh, we've projected really well. Uh, we, we've tried to plan for the worst. And, um, and the last two funds have, they both ran about a 12 to 18 month span of buying and, um, and they've turned out quite well. So I think we'll be, I think we're, we're really conservative. And so we, try to set, you know, set expectations low and, and kind of think of some worst case scenarios of like, you know, what kind of prices and pricing is going to be on parks and how that might change over the next couple, you know, 12 to 18 months. And what sure. are the capital markets going to do? 
I think we can agree that rates are have to stay. They have to stay low for at least the next year. I mean, I can't yeah. imagine uh, you know the, the world would fall into a tailspin really quickly if uh, the rates even went up like twenty basis points. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. Um, At this point, definitely. Well, Kevin, yeah. thank you so much for, for coming on the show and adding value to all of our listeners. I really appreciate it. Kevin, how can listeners get a hold of you if they'd like to, to chat more or get more information about Sunrise Capital? Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Andrew. Thanks for having me. And um, you know, for anyone who has an interest in Sunrise Capital, our company and what we do, you can go to our website. It's sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. And there you can actually, you can sign up and get on our list for when we you know, release offerings. You can be the first to know about it. If you want to you know, contact me personally, uh, you can either go to my website, kevinbupp.com. You can find me there. Just use the contact, you know, contact us or contact me link in there. It'll come right to me. And then uh, I've got my podcast as well. You can pretty much find me anywhere, Andrew. But uh, you know, you can listen to the podcast. Go to my website. Go to the company website, and um, I'm not too hard to track down. Just like you're not. <laughs> awesome! I love that man, and I yeah. highly recommend everybody contact Kevin and, and chat with him because he has a tremendous amount of value to offer you. So if you like the show, I really appreciate it if you could subscribe to get signed up to receive all of our future interviews with rock stars in the mobile home park space, just like Kevin. That's it for today. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Hey, are you getting value out of this show? If so, would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over 100 five-star reviews by the end of 2021, and it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. Thanks ahead of time for making my day with your five-star review of the show.